The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. And cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold within me a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. For children in kindergarten through fifth grade, if you'd like to go to children's church, please join the volunteers in the back corner. If it's your child's first time in children's church, please go with them to get them checked in. Good morning. My name is Mark. I'm on staff here. Always fun, the mass exodus of half of our church going to children's church. <laughs> uh, before we jump in, we need to clarify something about what's going on in this passage. Um, Psalm 51 is a beautiful illustration of God's ability and his willingness to forgive. Uh, and if you're here last week or you're familiar with the story of David and Bathsheba, uh, this does not address the fallout from David's actions. Right? Psalm 51 doesn't address the destruction that David wrought through his lies and sexual assault and murder and how Bathsheba's life was changed forever because of it. Um, this is a, a psalm of David speaking about his relationship with God. I just want us to be clear on that. This is a beautiful passage about how God can and has the ability and has the desire to forgive all sins, the worst of sins, but it's not intended to address the consequences of the sins that David had on other people. Does that make sense? It's a really good distinction, because um, it's not just glossing over what he did, but it's what has God done specifically with David here. Um, and God actually chooses Bathsheba to be the, the human ancestor of Jesus years and years later. And Dave, Ben's going to talk on that more next week. Um, just want to be clear. Shift gears to the 19th century author Dostoevsky. Uh, any of you had to read Crime and Punishment in school? It's one of my absolute favorites. I love it. Um, you should read it. If you didn't read it, you should go back and read it, just to clean your conscience. Uh, but Dostoevsky writes about this guy named Raskolnikov. And Raskolnikov gets this idea that you know morality and guilt, they're just kind of old-fashioned things. Um, it's really only for kind of 
the upper crust people who have to deal with morality and guilt. Um, and he says, you know, they're, they're old fashioned. They don't apply to him because basically they're just for the upper class. Morality and guilt are kind of bougie ideals that only apply to the wealthy and upper society. Uh, he, on the other hand, got to decide what was right and wrong. Does this sound familiar? I mean, it's, this book was written over 100 years ago, but it could have been written yesterday with the, the ideals that it's talking about. But early on in the book, he's talking about how guilt and feeling bad for your actions is just a ridiculous notion. And he decides to prove this theory by killing someone. There's this older lady in his neighborhood, and he decides nobody likes her. She kind of makes people's lives miserable, and she did. And so he said, I'm, I'm going to prove this theory by killing this lady. Welcome to Restoration, right? Uh, and then that, that happens, the murder happens pretty early on in the book, and the rest of the story is following Raskolnikov as he is utterly devoured by his guilt, right? And towards the end, he finds out that the police don't have enough evidence to convict him. Like, if he would just keep his mouth shut, he would get off clean and free, wouldn't have to go to jail. He's met a girl, they're falling in love, they've got a lot to look forward to, and yet, how does the book end? He goes to the police and he confesses, right? Because even though he wasn't going to experience any legal ramifications for his actions, the guilt was just eating him alive. And it's fascinating. After he confesses and he's being sent off to like Siberia for a very long time, uh, he says something to the effect of like, I feel like I wasn't even alive until I confessed, until I came clean. I just had this guilt that was just making me dead inside. So what I want to pitch at you this morning is that unless you have a regular pattern of confessing your sin, confessing your guilt, um, and repenting, and we're going to use that word repent a lot, and that just means turning from your sin and turning to God, um, unless you have this regular pattern, unless it's a part of no your normal life, you're not going to be able to enjoy life the way it's meant to be lived, right? Unless, uh, and if you consider yourself a Christian this morning, unless you are confessing your sins to God, you are not going to be able to enjoy your relationship with God the way you're supposed to. Uh, and so with that, let me pray, and then we'll jump in. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you that it's living and active, and you give it to us because you love us. And you want us to know you better, and you want us to know ourselves better. So would you give us a clear vision of both uh, so that we might love you and follow you better? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So all this summer, we've been going through a sermon series called Dispositions of the Heart. And we've been looking at David and how he kind of really is the epitome of all these facets of the human condition. Um, he's modeled friendship and faithfulness. He's had mercy and humility. He hasn't taken out vengeance on his enemies um, and if you're here kind of in and out during the summer and you missed those, I'd encourage you to go check those out. But for the most part, David has handled things extremely well, like better than we could ever imagine any of us doing. But last week, we looked at easily the lowest point in David's life, uh, when is your actions with Bathsheba and Uriah. She is, so in a nutshell, David was home. He was like sleeping around on the couch when all of his soldiers and generals were out fighting wars. He should have been out there. He wasn't. He wakes up from a nap. He goes out on his roof, and he sees Bathsheba bathing on the roof. She's beautiful. He wants her. He says, hey, who is that? And they're like, oh, that's Uriah's wife. And David knows Uriah. Uriah is one of his mighty men, and he had saved David's life on more than one occasion. Um, so it's not a complete stranger, but David doesn't care. He says, hey, bring Bathsheba to me. Um, they sleep together. He, he sends her back home. And then not too long after, he finds out that Bathsheba is pregnant. And to try to cover up what he did, he brings Uriah home from war. He says, hey, why don't you go be with your wife? Seems like a really nice thing. No reason in particular. Just go be with your wife. Uh, and Uriah is so noble. David even tries to get him drunk. 
But Uriah says, no, all of my men are just out sleeping in tents. There's no way I'm just going to go and have my time by myself. I'm going to sleep outside. He's so noble. He doesn't do it. And so David has to get Uriah killed. Uh, he talks to his general. He says, hey, I want you to put Uriah on the front lines. And when it gets really heavy, I want you to pull back so that he is sure to die. Uriah dies. David takes Bathsheba to be his wife. And so at that point in David's mind, like everything's good. He's covered his tracks. He's fine. Um, but God is too gracious to let his people just sit in their sin. God's too gracious to let people kind of go on without confronting them with their sin. And so God sends Nathan the prophet to go and confront David. And this morning, just to give you a roadmap of where we're going, uh, we're headed to look at what David's response is to being confronted with a sin. We're going to look at David repenting and how repentance just fills the Christian life. Right? Psalm 51 is written by David. It's his psalm of repentance, basically. And I'd be curious to what comes to your mind when you hear that word repent. Maybe you grew up in the church or you've been coming here for a while and you think, yeah, that's what we do after the sermon. We confess our sins. That's right. Uh, maybe you are new to Christianity or just investigating or you're new back for the first time in a long time. You think repent and you think that angry guy on the corner with a sign screaming at me, repent or you'll go to hell. Uh, or maybe you think about like driving down Alabama. Not, I was born in Alabama. Um, but you know, you have those huge billboards. It's like black background, big white letters, repent. And that's all it says. I've yet to meet someone who's like, oh yeah, I, I came to Christ because an angry sign or someone screamed at me. <laughs> Still waiting on that one. Uh, regardless of what comes to mind when you think of the word repent or repentance, I think it's fair to say that it's a fairly misunderstood aspect of Christianity. All, right, all this week I was thinking about the Princess Bride uh, where the guy keeps saying inconceivable, it's inconceivable. And Inigo Montoya says, you keep saying that word. I don't think that word means what you think it means. <laughs> Uh, I think repentance is one of those words that kind of get thrown around and we just, we could do a good job of kind of polishing up its meaning. In the book of Acts that we're going to look at in the fall, uh, Jesus' apostles are going around, they're preaching the gospel and people say, well, what do I have to do to be saved? And what do they typically say? Repent, believe, right? Repent and be baptized. Jesus himself will say, repent, enter the kingdom of heaven. So it's important. Um, so we're going to look at two things about repentance this morning. One, where does it start? And two, what does it look like? Where does repentance begin? What does it look like? So where does it start? Remember, David has done all these horrible things. He's coveted someone he wasn't married to. He's forced himself on her. He's killed a man. He's probably killed a lot of soldiers, actually. He's lied about it. Like, there's not that many more commandments that David could break here. And, and so, it, uh, <laughs> so up to this point, he, he thinks he's fine, but he's not. And so as we said earlier, God sends the prophet Nathan and Nathan is essentially David's pastor. He's a prophet. And this is key to understanding where repentance starts. It doesn't start with David being such a great guy, right? Because after David kind of took care of the consequences of his sin, he doesn't really seem to be losing much sleep. He thinks he's fine. He's not really worried about it. Um, so where does repentance start? It starts with God, right? God is going to be the reason that David is finally convicted. His heart finally breaks over his sin. Uh, in ancient Israel, the king was basically like the Supreme Court. And so people would bring their cases all day long and say, hey, this happened, this guy said this, this guy did this, what are we going to do about it, King David? And David would kind of give his, his rule on it. And in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1-4, through 4, Nathan brings David a case. And I'll just summarize it. Nathan comes, he says, hey David, uh, there were two men. There's a rich man and a poor man. 
And the rich man had all kinds of animals, all kinds of wealth. He had everything he could ever want. And there was a poor man who had one little lamb. And he said, this man loved this lamb. He would sit at his table. He was basically like just another member of the family. Any of you who have cats and dogs you're obsessed with, you would know this. Uh, but when the rich man had company, instead of taking from his abundance and from all of his animals and stuff, he went and stored the poor man's lamb, put it on his big green egg, and he served it to his guests. And Nathan's telling David the story. He says, what, what should we do with this guy, David? And David explodes. And he says, that man deserves to die. What he did is so atrocious, he deserves to die. And Nathan looks David square in the eye and he says, you are that man, David. He says, you are that greedy, selfish, power-hungry rich man who had everything he could ever want, but yet he took the one thing that this other guy loved so dearly. He says, you are the man. Oh, can you imagine what David must have felt? Right? He thought he had covered all his bases. He thought he was protected. He thought nobody else could come against him. And he just has this covering that he put up over himself completely ripped away. Um, it reminded me of uh, C.S. Lewis Chronicles of Narnia, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. In that book, there's a kid named Eustace, and Eustace is the worst. Like, he's just, <laughs> he's whiny, he's greedy, he's just always picking on people. He's just, he's no fun. C.S. Lewis wants you to dislike this guy. Um, and at one point in the story, Eustace wanders into a cave, and he finds there's all this treasure in this cave. And he gets so excited, he starts stuffing his pockets in his bag with gold. And the only thing you can think about is like how he's going to get back at people who have been mean to him. It's just like, I'm going to use all this to get revenge and get on top of these people. He has nothing about wanting to give them or helping them out at all. Um, and as he's filling his pockets, he falls asleep. And because this is Narnia, he wakes up and he's turned into a dragon. Um, and so he's got all the treasure he could ever want, but he's a dragon. So he can't get back on the ship and sail away with his, his buddies. He'll be stuck as this miserable monster forever, kind of surrounded by piles of gold. And just when Eustace is completely hopeless and he's starting to despair, Aslan shows up. And if you haven't read the books, Aslan is a lion. He's the kind of king of Narnia. He's the Christ figure in the books. And Aslan leads Eustace to this pool and he says, hey, if you can get into this pool, you'll be healed. He says, but you gotta, you gotta shed your dragon skin first. So Eustace is there with his dragon claws trying to scrape off all his scales and his dragon skin. And at first he thinks he's going to do it, a bunch of scales fall off, but then there's just more dragon skin, more thick, thick hide underneath that. So he's just going crazy, and he can't fix himself, and he freaks out again. And then Aslan tells Eustace, he says, no, you, you got to go deeper. And so Aslan, with his lion claws, comes over, and he just starts ripping this dragon skin off. And it's, it's painful to read. It's a kid's book, but it's pretty... I remember kind of being scarred by that when I was a kid. But this lion is just ripping through this dragon skin, and I think the word said he it felt like he was ripping the skin off of his heart. And so he finally gets him in, Aslan throws him in the water, and he's, he's healed. Uh, but it's, it's this painful moment of just ripping the stuff off. And that's the point. Right? Being convicted and confronted with our sin, that hurts, doesn't it? But it's a healing hurt. And again, Aslan throws him in after he's been just ripped raw in it, and he comes out whole again. You know, some good baptism imagery in there for good measure. Uh, but King David, sitting on his throne, surrounded by all of his wealth, having all the power, he was a dragon at this point. He had everything he wanted, everyone he wanted, he just got. And it took God graciously confronting him in his sin to kind of tear that dragon hide away, to painfully heal him. What does that look like in our lives? I mean, it might look like someone on staff coming to you and saying, you're the man. You're that woman who did that. 
Uh, maybe, uh, but what it will most likely look like is a friend of yours or a coworker or a spouse or someone in your city group or a parent kind of sitting you down and saying, hey, help me, exp help me understand this thing that I see in your life. I've noticed that you are doing blank or notice how you're treating this person. Help me understand this. And if you have people who love you enough to do that, it's going to hurt. And one more plug, if you don't have people like that in your life, that's what our city groups are for. So please get into those. You'll find community there. Uh, so that's going to hurt when people do that, but it will be a healing hurt. It might look like right now. You're sitting under the reading and the preaching of God's word when we confess our sins together, when we sing these beautiful truths together. Like We've sung some heavy songs today, and it's very intentional. It's kind of meant to get into our bones. And so if the Holy Spirit is convicting you of a pattern that needs to be changed, don't turn a blind eye to that. Don't try to shut that off and just kind of get through the day so you can get on to the next thing and just live life how you've been living in. You can keep on the path of Eustace, right? Kind of getting everything you've ever wanted, but you're turning into a monster. Or you can let Jesus graciously, albeit painfully, confront you and convict you. Some of you might actually need to pray that you get caught. Maybe caught being a dishonest employee, caught cheating in that class, caught looking at pornography, caught in that lie, caught in whatever scheme or kind of these angry patterns you have with people. And if that happens, it'll feel like your life is going up in flames. It really will. Uh, but whatever sin you're in, that would actually be God being gracious to you and kind to you by pointing that all out to the surface, by getting caught. So repentance starts with God lovingly convicting you and confronting you, what does it actually look like? So when Nathan tells David the story about the, the rich man, the poor lamb, and he says, you are that man, David hangs his head. And verse 13, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. All right, finally, after God convicts him, exposes his sin, David acknowledges that he's sinned against God. Of course, he's also sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah and all his soldiers. Um, David's not downplaying the fact that he has just left a wake of destruction in his path. But what really breaks his heart is sinning against God. Right? He knows that first and foremost, before everything else, he's sinning against God. And we can't cover everything in the psalm, but I just want to hit on a few highlights about what repentance really looks like. And I would encourage you just to read through this over the next couple of days. It's a really good psalm. Uh, one, you got to know your sin. Right? This comes at the beginning when the Holy Spirit convicts you of your sin against God. And for the Christian who loves Jesus and wants to follow Jesus, this will inevitably lead to hatred of your sin, having your heart broken by your sin. Uh, it's not hating the consequences of your sin, right? We all hate when bad things happen because we do bad things. Um, that, that's not so much repentance. When you say, well, I hate that I got caught and it kind of had these ramifications. Uh, it's hating the actual sin because it's an offense against God. Look back at verse 3 if you have it open. David says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. A strong language, isn't it? Evil. We typically reserve that language for like school shooters or serial killers or sex trafficking. But to truly repent, you've got to see your sin, all of it, as evil. Right? Because it's against a holy, perfect, sinless God. Look back at verse 17. It says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. David knows his sin. He knows it for the evil that it is, and he's heartbroken over it. 
But he's devastated over his sin against God. And do you want to know the crazy counterintuitive thing about following Jesus in the Christian life? I was talking with somebody before the service started about this. The longer you follow Jesus, the more kind of what the Bible calls sanctified you are, right? The more you start to look like Jesus, um, you might actually be sinning less, but you're going to feel worse about your sin. You're going to find yourself repenting and confessing more, being more brokenhearted over it. Uh, and if, if you haven't experienced that, I would encourage you to talk to someone who's been following Jesus for decades, and they'll tell you that. They're probably not dealing with half the sins that you are, but they, they feel so brokenhearted over it. And so if you're like me, and you do something, or you think something, or you treat someone in a way, and you think, why am I still having to fight this? Why am I still struggling with these same things? I love Jesus. I hate sin. Why am I still treating people like this? Why am I still having these thoughts? Why am I still struggling? And if you let yourself kind of continue down that path, you can almost trick yourself into thinking that you may not even be a Christian if you're still having these struggles. It can drive you insane. But don't you see then how even then God is being gracious to you? Right? If God were not involved in your life and if the Holy Spirit were not working on you over and over again, do you think that you'd be heartbroken for your sin at all? No way. You just got to go on business as usual. So please, if you find yourself stuck in a sin, but you also find yourself hating that sin, take that as a sure sign that God is at work in you. The Holy Spirit is working on your heart. Make sure you don't just hate the consequences of sin, but you hate sin because it's an offense to God. Holiness, right? What the Bible calls doing the things that God calls us to do, not doing the things he forbids. That's going to look a lot like struggling and failing and brokenness and neediness. You'll have a higher view of Jesus when you have a lower view of your own goodness and your own ability. So true repentance is knowing your sin. It's hating your sin. Uh, and it's also turning to Jesus. All right, look at verse one again. We're not going to make it very far today. We're going to make it through like two verses. Uh, David says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. David knows he needs mercy. He knows he needs forgiveness. And so where does he go to find it? Does he say, look at all the good stuff I've done, God. And David has done a lot of good things. Uh, does he say, think about all the times I did obey you. Think about all the people that I didn't kill, God. Uh, that was a joke. Uh, but does David, does he make promises like we do? Does he say, God, I will, I promise to be so much better. I'll never do it again. I'll go to church more. I'll give tons of money away. Does David say that? No. Oh. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your mercy. David knows that God's love and mercy is all he has. Because here's the thing, David knew his Bible, which at this point is the Old Testament, first half of the Old Testament. David helped write some of scripture. David knew God's law. And there was a law that said in Leviticus 20 that the penalty for adultery is death. Now, again, this is, this is what's called the civic law in the... Uh, ancient Israel kingdom, okay? Kingdom of Israel. It's not in effect today. The moral law is, like the Ten Commandments, that's still for us to follow. Uh, but the civic and the ceremonial laws aren't. Like things about kind of washing and purification and don't eat barbecue, don't eat selfish. Those are not in effect. Jesus has fulfilled those. And we're so thankful for that. Uh, and if I, he's fulfilled those on our behalf. If that's, if that's more confusing, please come talk to me. I want that to be helpful because that's something that we really need to know today when people talk about that. But even for the king of all Israel to commit adultery, the punishment for that in ancient Israel was death. 
Israel is to be a light to the world, right? People were supposed to see this kingdom of Israel and say, wow, they're all following God's law. Life really is better when you follow God's law. Like this is what God's kingdom is supposed to look like. So there were extremely harsh punishments for anything like this. And so in confessing his sin to God and to Nathan and really to all of Israel, because he's writing this psalm, it's supposed to be a public song that people would sing in worship. Uh, David is expecting Nathan to say, David, you are now to be executed. That's the biblical letter of the law. But David repents. And in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, you know what God says to the prophet Nathan? He says, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. And that's the gospel in a nutshell. Christian, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. And even though David couldn't fully understand what was going on, a thousand years later, one of his ancestors Jesus, God the Son, would put on flesh and be born into his line. And because David, even the Old Testament, because he put his faith in the God who had promised to send a Savior and to fix things, because he put his faith on him, the Lord could put away his sin because he would put it onto Jesus. Right? And your sin is put onto Jesus when you turn to him in faith. Jesus deserved eternal life, and yet he experienced death, so that you and I who deserve death can have true eternal life. And on the cross, Jesus was broken so that you and I could be made whole. Jesus suffered, bled, and died so that we could have healing. And this healing, right, this life is offered to everyone who repents and turns to Jesus. To you who know your sin, hate your sin, and turn to Jesus, the Lord has put away your sin. Amen? That is an invitation. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for putting things like this in your word. Uh, that the utter embarrassment it would be for David, who was supposed to be the best, uh, just failed miserably and that you didn't cast him off, you didn't punish him unnecessarily, and over and over, uh, you forgive him. We thank you for the infinite forgiveness we have in Jesus, that we can't out his forgiveness. Would you press that truth deep into us? Uh, would you keep us humble, knowing our sin, and yet our held, heads held high, knowing how much you love us and how kind you are to us? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We can't out-sin his forgiveness. Would you press that truth deep into us? Uh, would you keep us humble, knowing our sin, and yet our held, hand, heads held high, knowing how much you love us and how kind you are to us? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.